Alright. Well, good morning, 11 o'clock. How's it going? Alright, alright, alright. It's a 4th of July weekend. It's good to have you here uh, today. Um, my family's still up in, they were uh, up in Seattle. I, I was able to celebrate 4th of July with many of you at the picnic while my family was up in the Seattle area. They sent me pictures. They built, um, my, bo- I have three boys. They, they built these little wooden houses and built a whole village and got the little, um, toy army guys. And for two days up there, fireworks are legal. So they brought in the 4th of July by, um, the way boys should, right? So, and at one point my wife called me and, and she said, um, because I texted her and said, I am so jealous right now. <laughs> it looks so fun. And she called and said, hey, Ian wants to know if, if he has a Roman candle. Is it okay if he shoots it um, directly at his village he built? And, and I said, well, if he does, it's likely that the fireballs might ricochet somewhere. And she said, oh, okay. Hey, Ian, he, your dad said it's a bad idea. And I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't say it's a bad idea. I just said the fireballs are going to ricochet. <laughs> Sounds like a fantastic idea. <laughs> But, you know, so anyway, so they had a good time up there celebrating Fourth of July. Hopefully you did as well here. So uh, let's pray as we get started with our morning. God, we thank you so much uh, for the freedom that our country has. I thank you um, for the men and women who have led the way and who have sacrificed so much for us, for those who continue to do so. We thank you for the men and women in this congregation who are currently Uh, still sacrificing for our country and for our freedom. And God, we thank you for the freedom that you give us as followers of you, that uh, your sacrifice uh, brought a different kind of freedom in our lives. And so I pray, God, that this morning would be about you, that Seacoast would be a church that is about experiencing and celebrating the freedom that you give and for communicating that to the world around. We thank you for all you do and pray that you would lead us and teach us this morning. Your name, Amen. All right. Well, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a German theologian and German pastor. Born in 1906, he lived during both world wars. Uh, leading up to the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent some time in Harlem, in the United States, and he attended an African American church there. And Bonhoeffer admitted that that was a time in his life where his faith kind of took a turn where he saw how this congregation was so committed, so passionate about their faith in Christ, that they believed that it should compel them to make a difference in their world. It wasn't just about having appropriate theology and orthodoxy and and a lot of knowledge, but it was faith that should compel them to action. And that was transformative in Bonhoeffer's life. From that point on, when Bonhoeffer returned to Germany and the Nazis were coming into power, he stood against them and thought, as a follower of Christ, we cannot stand for any sort of a government that would, one, oppress and kill people just because of their race or their religion. He was part of the resistant movement, and during the war he actually was placed into the Gestapo prison camp, later transferred to several concentration camps. Three weeks before the end of the war, Hitler learned of Bonhoeffer's uh, participation in a failed attempt to assassinate Hitler. And so the next morning on April 9th, Bonhoeffer was led naked and bound in ropes to the gallows where he was hung and killed. 
During that time, Bonhoeffer had a choice, and he could have made a choice to try to back up from that and, and find a way out of the situation. He was leaving his family behind. But Bonhoeffer was so committed to say, I'm standing up for what I know is right. That I'm not going to back up from what I believe. In fact, even more so, I'll be strong in my faith. Bonhoeffer actually wrote a series of letters that were actually smuggled out of the prisons. Some great letters of the faith. To demonstrate how he responded in a time of extreme trial. But how it didn't ruin his faith, but it actually strengthened his faith. And not only did it strengthen his faith, but it strengthened his own message. His message and his mission of, of bringing the, the hope of Christ to the world. The way he interacted even in prison. One of Bonhoeffer's students wrote this uh, during, after the execution. He said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, and then he climbed a few steps to the gallows. He was brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. See, Bonhoeffer understood that the trial he was facing the way he entered into that trial would communicate something very great. In fact, the way he responded in that difficult time became a major influence in the life of Martin Luther King Jr. It was Bonhoeffer's example that influenced Martin Luther King Jr. and gave him courage to stand for something that he believed Christ called him to, to fight for equal rights. And we are grateful that Bonhoeffer did so. We're grateful for Martin Luther King Jr., We're grateful that in the face of trial, they were able to show us what true faith means. We're in the middle of a series where we're talking about pain. And when we talk about pain, we're we're not just talking about physical pain. We're talking about the hardships that we go through. We talk sometimes it it, it might look like loneliness. It might look like um, struggles. It could be physical pain, but all of these things in the series, we've been talking about the source of pain. We we address that at the beginning. That we live in a fallen world, so sometimes just the natural order of things in a fallen world bring pain and hurt in our lives. And sometimes because of the fallen people in our world, fallen people do awful things. And though God is in control, he is not a controlling God. And so sometimes evil things happen that cause pain. We talked about how pain can actually demonstrate and lead us to God's grace and can help us understand his love even more. talked about how pain can sharpen our beliefs can strengthen even our behaviors as we go through those trials. We learn that pain can also, and the trials we go through, can can lead to our ministry to others. The struggles and trials and pains you've gone through can then be led or used as you help others walk through the same thing. This morning we're going to take a little bit different look at it. Because we're going to admit that if you're a follower of Christ or if you're not a follower of Christ, difficult things happen to us. Would everyone agree? Yes, it does. If you don't agree, just wait. (laughs) It's part of life. And so this morning, what we want to look at is when those things happen, how we respond to those things. This morning, we're going to explore how our response can actually what that communicates about our message as followers of Christ and our mission as a follower of Christ. 
Because it's in our response. It's in how we interact with that pain that communicates something about our beliefs. And so this morning, that's what we'll explore a little bit. And before we get into it, let's just quickly review what is our mission as as followers of Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, you get to hear what we believe is our mission. (laughs) And then you get to hear how we want to interact with that. And I hope that that will serve as an encouragement to you to not make you say, oh, I'm turned away, but to say, wow, that's something I want to be a part of. So a, a brief review of what is our mission as followers of Christ, because we have to understand that because before we can understand how our trials and our responses help or hurt our mission. So first of all, our mission, Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 19, go into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said our mission is to go and to make disciples. Just as we follow Christ, we want to help others follow Christ. Paul said it this way when he said part of that, the way it looks to become a follower of Christ or to make disciples. I'll have this verse on the screen for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 19, after talking about the hope of Christ, he said, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their sins against them, he committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, if you've been around church for a long time or you're an accountant, you probably know the word reconcile or reconciliation. But it might be a little unclear for some of you. Essentially, the word reconcile means to take something that is not in harmony and to cause it to now be in harmony, to coexist. So Paul explains, he says, because of what Jesus has done, he took us as people who were not in harmony with God because of our sin, and he gave us the ability to now be in harmony with God because of what Christ has done. And he said, and so therefore, as followers of Jesus, your mission is to communicate this ministry or this this message of reconciliation, this message that says that anyone has the ability to be in harmony with God through Christ. Anyone. That's why it's incredibly unhelpful to stand on a street corner with a sign that says God hates and put in any blank you want to for the type of people you think God hates. To walk around with that sign is not exactly the ministry of reconciliation. You're not communicating, hey, God wants to be in harmony with you. You're communicating God hates you. Now, I understand because of sin that separates us from God and all of our sin separates us from God. But we're called to bring the message to people that says you have the ability to be made in harmony with God through Christ. That's part of our message in making disciples to help people understand that no one, I don't care what you've done or what you're into, no one. No one's sin is so great that the death and resurrection of Christ is not enough to change that. We've got to understand that. And so Paul says, hey, we're called to this ministry of reconciliation. Part of our mission of making disciples is helping people see that through Jesus, they can be in harmony with God. Paul also says in Romans chapter 10, I also have this up here for you. Romans chapter 10, he's, he's talking about uh, uh, going out and, and people calling on the name of the Lord. And he says, how will they call on the name of him who they've not believed? 
How will they believe in him if they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. In other words, Paul says part of this ministry of reconciliation, part of making disciples is going and making the message known. That word preach there is not talking about what Dale and I do of standing up here and preaching. In fact, probably the least effective way of helping people understand the love of God is standing up here and telling you it. The preaching is all of us together going and bringing that message in our daily lives. All right. So that's our mission to make disciples. We do that by sharing with people the message of Christ, the forgiveness that's possible, the hope that is there. All right, so that's our review. You guys got it? That's our mission this morning that we're talking about when I say, when I talk about our message and our mission. So now let's look at trials and pain. And the question for us this morning is how does our response or how does pain, how do trials actually help or hurt? How do they affect our message? And we're going to look at just three points here today that I believe are found in our text. And I invite you to open up to the book of Philippians chapter 2. And these are things that we find that Paul is writing. And this is a letter he writes to the church in an area called Philippi. Now, we learn about Philippi. The first time we learn about it is where some of the very first Christians in Asia Minor uh, convert. And, And Paul is there and he's actually arrested. And he's beaten and flogged, says he's put into the inner prison, not just prison, but the inner jail cell, and then in stocks. So not only is he arrested and beaten and and thrown into a cell, but the inner cell, and then he's put into stocks, and that's how they're treating him, because of his message about Jesus. And now, this is sometime later, he's no longer in that prison, but he's in another one, perhaps in Ephesus or in Rome, but he's writing to the church in Philippi. So this letter is to them to give them encouragement because they're in a place where they are experiencing persecution or they are about to experience some extreme persecution for their faith. And and when they are hearing about Paul being in jail and they're saying, I I don't know if we can keep following Jesus because here's one of our leaders and now he's about to die and he's bound in chains. So Paul is writing to them to give them some encouragement. We're going to pick it up in Philippians chapter 2 as we examine how trials can affect our message, let's learn from Paul, because I think he understood trials as well as almost any of us will ever understand them. And, and let's pick up in verse, uh, let's pick up in verse 12, actually. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God whose work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I want to stop there really quickly. Just so you know, this is a communal command he's giving. It's not a command giving to one individual. He's speaking to the church, the collective gathering of Christians in Philippi here. So when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, please do not mistake this and think it means work for salvation or work to keep your salvation. Your salvation is done because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's saying because of what Christ has done within you as a community, live your your lives as if what Christ has done is actually true. Work it out out of fear and reverence before God. Live your lives before him because of what he has done for you. And then he goes on to verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So let's stop right there. So I believe our first point is in here. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you the point we'll talk about. So how do trials affect our message? The first one is this. One, the trials can, they demonstrate that we have a new outlook on life. See, our lives of following Christ should be a little bit different than before we were following Christ. And, and, and any of you who say you're a Christian and you live exactly the same now as you did before Christ, um, you're probably missing something or you were very godly before. I don't know. And maybe you've been a Christian for like 20 years, and I would even argue, if you've been a Christian for 20 years and your life today still looks like it did 20 years ago, you probably have a growth issue. Because the life of following Christ is we're continually being made into new creatures. We should be new. We should have a new outlook. And the way we respond to things should be different with Christ in our lives. Now, look at how, what Paul says. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This word grumbling is a great Greek word. It's gungudzo, gungudzo. And, and it's an automatopoeia. It's actually supposed to sound what it is. It, it's supposed to sound like grumbling, gungudzo, gungudzo. And, and it kind of has that idea. And Paul's saying, don't go around life just gungudzo, complaining and grumbling about everything. Now, I know none of us in here um, have ever experienced people like this, but I've read it in Time Magazine that sometimes, like at work, people complain a lot. And, and so, I, and hardly, everyone's like, really? It was in time? Yeah. No, I mean, we're in a world where people like to complain, right? Some of the, how many of you like to complain about everything? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Thank you for raising your hand. I got you. Um, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of us love to complain. Now, you live in San Diego. Look at the weather outside today. How many of you are like, oh, it's cloudy today? <laughs> Come on. We're in a culture where we complain about everything. It kind of gets old. And Paul's saying, you know what, as a follower of Christ, can you live your life in a way? Would you just put aside that complaining? How fun is it to be around someone who's always negative? I mean, aren't those the kind of people you're just like, oh, I love, here comes Mr. Complainer. I can't wait to hang out with them. (laughs) Come on. And Paul recognizes, he said, you know, in Christ, we should have a new outlook on life. Make the choice to do things without grumbling. Now, this doesn't mean that you can never vent. I understand. Sometimes you need to vent. But if all you ever do is vent, you're going to run out of air. Okay? You don't need to vent all the time. That's called grumbling all the time. That, I mean, sometimes you say, well, this is kind of hard that I'm going through. Okay, I get that. But don't walk around complaining and grumbling. The world needs some positive influence. And, and to be honest, some non-Christians, people who don't follow Christ, are very positive, enjoyable people to be around. I'm sure some of you know them. When you're like, hey, I love that. That person, I, I like to be around them more than a lot of my Christian friends. My Christian friends can be really negative, but some of these non-Christian friends are pretty positive. That's embarrassing as a follower of Christ. We should be the ones where people are like, they are such a breath of fresh air. You know, when I was working for uh, Starbucks in, in management, one of the Starbucks mission is uh, actually to uplift the human spirit. It said uplift lives one person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. And I actually think it's a really great mission. It sounds very Christian to me. Because the theory was we wanted everyone who comes in to feel like something special happened in that interaction. And it, it was about money. <laughs> 
It was about us wanting them to be loyal, say, come back tomorrow and give us more money. It's, it, there's no altruistic thing about it. Let's be honest. But, you know what? People came back. And one of the things that happened for me is I, I was assigned the task to go into stores and help turn them around. Turn them from places that were very negative to places that were positive. And we were able to, just by changing the culture and saying, let's uplift the life of each person you interact with, however you need to do it, we'd see double-digit growth in the customers within one month. Because people said, whatever happened there, I, I want to go back. You've probably experienced this at some of the stores. They do a great job with it. And the ones that don't, you don't go back to that one, right? You go to the one that they're nice. <laughs> Christians should learn from that. We need to be the place where they say, you know what? I just I show up and you guys just have a different outlook. The way you interact with the difficult things even brings positive. It's positive. And this is not all just about self-help, positive talk. But it's with Christ, we should have a different outlook. So do everything without grumbling. He also says without fighting. He says without disputing. Do you know people who like to fight about everything? <laughs> Some of you like to fight about everything. You don't, I, you don't even know why. You just think, it's just fun. I like to fight. I like to win. Maybe you say, like, well, I'm just right. <laughs> What's the matter? I fight because I'm always right. I'm the best driver on the road, so I can yell at everyone else. I know I am. Right? You always have it figured out. Paul says, do everything without disputing. In other words, if you're the type of person who's always fighting about something, you need to have a new outlook. Why are you fighting so much? I learned I was working in a church where we kind of had new leadership, and we just didn't get along. We didn't get along. We had a different outlook, different perspective on how to do things. And we had a lot of conflict, a lot of conflict. And, and we were appropriate. We never did it publicly. Our fights were all in the office, and um, we get no, – I'm kidding. Um, but we – you know, we just didn't get along, and we fought a lot. And looking back, I think, man, there were times when I needed to quit fighting. Now, there's times when I knew that, hey, this is something I need to stand against. But you know what? A lot of times, if I could do it over again, I'd say, you know what? It's not. Why am I fighting? Because really what ultimately it comes down to is I wanted to be right because somewhere in there, I'm thinking I am worth more if everyone knows I'm right. And that's a lie. Because in Christ, I need to learn that my identity is wrapped up in Him, whether you think I'm great or not. And there's times I need to just submit or be quiet or step back and say, fighting is not helping. Now, there are, there are, extreme, there are cases where we need to stand up and fight. Don't get me wrong. But do you live your life just always fighting? If you do, ask yourself, why? Do you need to be right? Does it make you better? Or with Christ in our lives, can we stop and say, you know what? My identity is in Him. I can face life and the trials and hardships, even trials that people bring on me that I don't deserve. I can still face that without fighting because ultimately my identity is in Christ. If I could do it over again, I would do it differently and I would fight less. Ultimately, uh, you know, we, we decided it was time to leave, and so we left. We actually, we were so tired of conflict, we moved from there to the Middle East. So, um, <laughs> I didn't read the news much. And, and <laughs> uh, Paul writes this in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, and we have it on the screen for you. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. 
The old has passed. Behold, the new have come. Hey, our trials communicate that we have a new outlook on life. We should be different. Okay. So trials communicate we have a new outlook. Number two, what do trials or heart hurts, what does pain communicate? Number two, they communicate we have a new hope. We have a new hope. We have something different to cling to and to grasp, grasp onto. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. In verse 15, Paul says, You'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. He uses this word lights in the world. It's some big, real lofty term. It's actually like stars in the cosmos. In other words, as a follower of Christ, you have the ability to bring light to the whole world. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, Jesus said something like that. You're the light of the world. In Christ, when we go through trials, we go through hard things, we have an ability to communicate that we have a new hope. The way we interact with things, we should be shining like stars in the heavens and showing people, wow, there's something different. If we respond to difficulties just like anyone who doesn't even know Christ, then they'll look at you and say, what's the difference? Why should I follow your God? You're exactly the same as me. You feel as hopeless as I do. You're as lost as I am. Why would I follow your God? See, when we go through those tough, difficult times, we have an ability to communicate to people that there's hope found in Christ. There's hope in a hopeless world. We're children of God. I love that. Being called a child of God. Do you think if we really grasped and understood the idea that we are children of God, that we should kind of, the creator of the universe who holds all things in his hands, we should probably go through life a little differently? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yeah. Does it make things easier? No. But do we have a hope we can cling to? Yes. You know what? And, And the hard thing about this is some of you will not see that hope fulfilled on this side of heaven. Some of you are going through some difficult times, difficult things, maybe health issues, maybe issues with family. I don't know. And some of you, you cling to the hope that God's in control, but that might, you might not realize the whole strength of that until heaven. But that's an amazing hope, that we have the hope of eternal life. It's not so easy sometimes. It doesn't necessarily make you feel better, but it's something we can grasp onto that God will make this all right one day. We can cling to that. If that's all we have, that's a pretty amazing thing. I would hate to go through life thinking this is all there is. This is it. There's nothing else. We have the ability to communicate to people that there's hope that lies beyond There's hope for today, but there's hope for tomorrow as well. And how we respond will communicate that. Again, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. I love the way he he writes this because he's been beaten and flogged. And later we learn he's shipwrecked. He's bitten by poisonous snakes. And he's thrown into prison. And he's starved. And he's all these things for the sake of Christ. He went through some trials, I would say. I would think at some point, you just go like, Paul, seriously, it's time to just retire, all right? But this is how he responds to it. After he's talking of the hope of Christ, he says, we have this treasure, this hope of Christ, in earthen vessels, and essentially he's saying in our bodies, that are perishable, that can break. 
so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We're always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our bodies. This sounds like someone who has hope. I get persecuted, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not abandoned. I get struck down, I'm not destroyed, because my hope is in the fact that Christ is in charge of all and he gives me my identity. I mean, this is a man who has hope. He says, I'm always caring about Christ in my body so that you, that he may be made known in my body. The life of Christ in me. This is hope. I love that. So the way trials affect our message, one, they demonstrate a new outlook. Two, they communicate a new hope. And three, they bring a new focus into life. You know, I, I, I was thinking our, our oldest son, he was a preemie. He was born um, early and was in NICU for 10 days. We were new parents, so we had no idea what was going on. So we kind of just made it through that time. And then our youngest, uh, five years or six years later, he was also came early and uh, had an emergency C-section. He had the cord around his neck. He was still like six, seven weeks early. He spent a month in NICU, had the tubes, had everything. And it's very easy at a time like that to not, not be sure where your hope is found. Say, so, God, we know you're in control, but can you show it a little more clearly here? And sometimes trials, I was thinking about it, is they have a tendency to, as the third one says, to, to bring focus, to bring a new focus in life. When everything else is stripped away and you're left with the only things you can grasp onto, then sometimes we can refocus and say, what am I really living for? L- look what Paul says again in Philippians 2 as he continues on with this. Verse 16, he says, hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain. Or toil in vain. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with all of you. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. Share your joy with me. In other words, Paul is saying, I I cling to the word of life. Cling to Jesus. And even if I'm poured out and sacrificed and killed for your sake, that's fine. Take joy in that. Because the message of Jesus being made known. Does this sound like someone who kind of has a good focus on life? As things are are stripped away. Sometimes the trials and the heartache that we go through are the the very thing we need to find out what's really important. How many people have faced death and come away and say, I kind of have my priorities straight now. I'm going to live a little differently. How many people on their deathbed have ever said, you know, I I should have invested so much more money in my life. You know, they're facing their final hours and they say, oh, man, I, the only thing I wish, I wish I had more stuff for me. <laughs> That's, you never hear that, right? I, I never have. I'm sure someone has said it. But most people would say, oh, if only I would have loved my family more. If only we would have spent more time together. If only I'd have done more for Christ. See, when you face those trials, sometimes focus, we, we get clarity. They help bring that clarity. When we were living in Israel, one of the things that 
we often faced there was this feeling of loneliness. Anyone who's lived overseas can certainly relate. And we have some uh, men and women in here who've been deployed and, and overseas, and they certainly can relate to that sense of loneliness. And, and I had my wife and my kids with me, so we weren't totally alone. But still, there's this kind of sense of we're just here. We're in a, a country we don't know, language we don't speak. And it gets kind of lonely. And even more so for my wife, because, you know, I kind of had my bubble. I had an, a, a task and I was doing this work at the university there. So I, I had a reason to be there. So I kind of had she called it my I would go to my bubble for the day <laughs> and I get to speak English to people. <laughs> And so, yeah, I could escape, but there's still this sense of loneliness almost every day. And it was a weird mix of just incredible joy and feeling blessed. I mean, I live in Jerusalem. This is the coolest place to live, yet it's so difficult and lonely. And my wife often struggled with that. And I want to end this morning and just share a few uh, lines from a a post that she wrote. When we were over there, we kept this uh, an online journal. So I'm going to share it without permission here. Uh, It's posted online, so it's with permission. (laughs) But I love the way she explained this. And and as I share this, I want to ask the, um, in a few minutes, we're going to have the worship team. Actually, you guys can hang out for a second. You don't have to come up yet. (laughs) But she wrote this uh, on one of our last days in Jerusalem. She wrote it kind of her reflections on the years as she was just kind of working through that sense of loss, that sense of pain, of of just being lonely, of having a kind of a difficult year. And she writes this, and so bear with me, I want to share a a significant portion of it. She said, uh, she explained where she's walking in the city, kind of reminiscing, and said, I turned away, I turned to walk away from the city gates where we spent a lot of time. And I was surprised to feel not a tear, but a pain. That little ache in my heart caught me off guard. At this point, I also realized a song by David Crowder had come onto my ear in my iPod. So she's listening to her music. And the words of the song said, Take my heart, I lay it down, at the feet of you who's crowned. The song, that song was playing and she started having a little panic attack. We are actually leaving. I don't know if I'm ready to say goodbye. Meanwhile, David was singing, take my life, I'm letting go. I lift it up to you who's thrown. Further on the post, she says, take, the song continues to play, take my fret, take my fears. All I have, I'm leaving here. Be all of my hope, be all my dreams, you're my delight, be my everything. The song continued and said, and I will worship you, only you, Lord, and I will bow down before you. Only you, Lord. Sarah goes on to write, and I actually laugh. Not because I think that worship of God is funny, but because I realize that God has done a funny thing in me this year. You see, there's a little movie that I love. It's called A Walk to Remember. Anyone familiar? Some of you? None of the guys. Okay. Um, (laughs) A Walk to Remember. It's about a pastor's daughter and a bad boy rebel cool kid. In the movie, you figure that the two will get together, but you think that eventually the girl will start to at least dress a little cuter or start acting a little cooler. But she never does. The cool kid does fall in love with her, 
And, and it's because he is changed by her inward qualities. And I believe God in her. Sarah writes, Jerusalem has most definitely not changed this year. But somehow I have. I have genuinely come to love Israel and not because of its outward appeal. I love Israel because God has been here with us this year. In the same way that he was with us in California, the same way he will be with us wherever we are, I have cried out to God many times on the streets and the alleyways of Jerusalem, and he has answered me and embraced me. Despite the constant struggles, which I might add I have not been shy to blog about, (laughs) God has faithfully and lovingly kept my head up, even if barely enough. I walk past the lion fountain and praise God for this year. I genuinely thank him for our time here. I'm excited because I know that he will be with us even next year as we enter into new ventures in life. I can be moved to tears by the living, pulsing heart of God in Jerusalem. It's okay because it beats in California as well. All and all the world. And my heart skips a beat as I walk through a crowd of some out-of-town camera-toting tourists. And I hear David Crowder singing in my ear a love song to God that I too am singing at this point. And it ends, the song ends and says, it's just you and me here now. Only me and you, only you and me here now, Lord. And it said, you should see the view when it's only you. And ask the worship team to come up as they make their way. I felt like this post captured the sense, this idea of how loneliness and going through that trial can clarify things. It got us, Sarah and me, to this point where we could cry out to God because that was about all we could cling to. And I love the way as she reflects and the song is playing and you get to the end and it says, it's just me and you, you and me here now, God. Just the two of us. The trial, the heartache, the, the struggles have stripped away everything around. All the peripheral things are gone. And now we're focused. See, it's not always fun to go through pain and trials. But one of the benefits sometimes is it can bring what really matters to the forefront. It gets us to the place where we are left and it's just you and God. And that's right where we need to be as followers of Christ. I don't know about you, but I kind of sometimes get tired of myself. I get tired of myself thinking that there's a lot of other things to live for than Christ. I get wrapped up in a whole lot of things. Dumb things sometimes. Sports scores bug me. (laughs) What's that about? And sometimes I'm just reminded that, God, I just want it to be you and me. A life sold out living for Jesus. Bringing this message that there is hope to a world that's saying, is there really something to hope in? In the very end of that song, I think we, if we just think of these words, it says, you should see the view. And this is him singing to God. God, you should see the view when it's only you. When everything else has been stripped away. And I look up and all I'm looking at is my Savior. That's a pretty great view. I hate that it takes trials and heartache and difficult things to... Get that view. But I love getting to that view. Can we be a church that says, Jesus, we just want to be about you. We want to look and see you, focus on you. We're going to go through hard things. We're going to embrace each other, walk together. 
But we're going to keep our hope because we have hope in you. And we want our world, our community to know that in you there's hope. Can we be a church? That's what I want to be about. So as we enter into a time of worship, we'll also have the offering during this time. Let's just end and, and let God speak to your heart. Maybe there's things you need to surrender. Maybe you've been living for a lot of stuff. And this morning God's saying, are you ready to give up and focus on me? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that, well, I thank you that you left the ultimate example of being focused on your mission of reaching out to us, enduring the cross for us. God, I thank you that you are patient with us as we seek to to live for you and bring your message to the world. I thank you that you come alongside us in our trials and our hardships. And God, as difficult as they are, I also thank you that through those trials, sometimes we are left with a razor-sharp focus on you. God, we want to be a church that is all about you and nothing else. So I pray that you mold us and shape us now. You to you, you draw us to the cross. You teach us, God, to respond to you as our Savior. We thank you and we give you our worship now.